Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to conservation and stewardship of the natural world. I'm Dylan Banyasco. I'm a landscape architect, outdoorsman, and conservationist. I'm learning from exceptional people who are working to improve our relationship with land in one way or another. Subscribe on your preferred podcast app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Seth Wilson is the executive director of the Blackfoot Challenge, a leading collaborative conservation group based in western Montana. As an applied conservation biologist, Seth has worked on resolving issues between people and wildlife in the United States, Canada, and Europe for more than 20 years. He began working for the challenge in 2001 as the organization's first wildlife coordinator, conducting scientific research and developing strategies to reduce conflicts with grizzly bears and wolves as they return to this part of their historic range. Recently, he spent three years in Slovenia as an advisor to the Slovenian Forest Service and partners from Italy, Austria, Croatia, Slovakia, and Romania, supporting brown bear and Eurasian lynx conservation and management. We talked about the history and structure of the Blackfoot Challenge, the unique and majestic landscape it's situated in, the challenges of working with such a diverse group of landowners, and their carnivore coexistence work that has become a model for other parts of the world. Check out blackfootchallenge.org for more information and for stunning visuals of this landscape. You can start with a 13-minute film called Landscape of Hope under the history page. Thanks. Here's Seth. All right, I'm sitting here virtually with Seth Wilson of the Blackfoot Challenge. Seth, how are you, man? I'm great. Thanks, Dylan. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I'm sitting in Ovando, Montana. Uh, hoping that spring might come at some point this winter. <laughs> I'm with you. It feels like winter still. Yeah, we're getting the same, the same uh, conditions down here in Colorado. I'm I'm in the Roaring Fork Valley, and we just got another three inches of snow yesterday, and everyone's kind of everyone's over it. But all good. Are you a skier? Are you at least enjoying that part? I am, and uh, I've really enjoyed. Uh, we've had a wonderful winter here in uh, Western Montana. And my kids are skiers, so I've had a lot of fun skiing with them at our local ski hill called the Snow Bowl. And, uh, yeah, we still have lots of snow left. Good. Well, at least you've got that going for you. And you're close to Missoula-ish? Yeah, Ovando uh, is really in the heart of the Blackfoot watershed, uh, which is about one and a half million acres. And it's about a 45-minute drive from Missoula to Ovando. Okay, nice. I've been up in that area as a kid, but it's been a long time. I think the last time, and maybe the only time I saw a grizzly, was uh, on that trip. Uh, Which brings me to kind of one of the reasons I wanted to connect with you. Through doing this podcast, the Blackfoot Challenge has come up a couple of times as this amazing example of collaborative conservation with private landowners, public agencies, and community members. And I really didn't know much about it until someone said recently that that I should really check it out. So I started reading up on it, which is why I reached out to you. I really want to understand more about how this operates and and how it got started. So I guess if you could give us a background of of this landscape and sort of the the cultural context and the natural context in which you're situated uh, as a start, that would be great. Sure. Happy to, Dylan. So... 
the Blackfoot Valley or watershed is in, in Western Montana. This area is referred to frequently as the crown of the continent ecosystem, which is roughly 10 million acres. It incorporates several designated wilderness areas and it includes uh, Glacier National Park, uh, several national forests, uh, two different Native American reservations, all told about a fifth of that 10 million acres is in private ownership. And the, the Blackfoot watershed is at the very southern end of, of what we call the crown of the continent. And, and people uh, have, you know, referenced this landscape being one of the last intact, largest intact uh, watersheds uh, in, in the American West. So it's, it's a real, it's an amazing, it's an amazing valley. It's a mix of public and private lands, and it's got a long history of landowners, public agencies, state agencies, NGOs uh, working together. That history informally began in the 1970s when landowners uh, wanted to preserve the, the rural lifestyle uh, of, this, of this valley and had concerns about the river which had been degraded historically for, from mining, some past forestry practices, and some and some ranching practices that uh, were, were impacting the river. These landowners uh, really had the f the foresight um, and and the the smarts and the and the you know the thoughtfulness to begin conversations um, with each other, and then extend those conversations across boundaries to include public agency managers as 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 many of these issues as you know uh, Dylan whether it's a fire or water quality or uh, wildlife you know these systems uh, require cooperation across boundaries and across different management jurisdictions and that vision dating back to the 1970s really is the sort of the foundation of our work today. We incorporated formally as an NGO in 1993. So this year marks our 30th anniversary in collaborative conservation. Wow, congrats. How long have you been with the Blackfoot Challenge? Well, thanks, Dylan. Um, so I was our first wildlife program coordinator and I had the great fortune to be in the right place at the right time and that that position uh for me started in the early 2000s actually 2001 and i was our coordinator through 2015 through that time we saw grizzly bears reoccupying um, private agricultural valley bottom lands uh, wolves showed up in the blackfoot in 2007 Okay. So it was a very uh, interesting, challenging, um, inspiring time to, you know, be our first coordinator. And I felt lucky I got the chance to help the community adjust uh, to the presence of grizzly bears and wolves over that time. In 2015, I had another great fortune opportunity. Uh, I felt, again, felt very lucky to get to work in former Yugoslavia 
in a little country called Slovenia mm. and spent three years working there uh, on a bear project and then a reintroduction project involving Eurasian lynx. So that was a three-year uh, sort of dream job, brought my family, um, my kids oh, wow. got to go to international school and we really got to absorb the Slovenian culture and made a lot of wonderful friends, both personally and professionally um, in Slovenia and in Croatia. Wow. I've heard amazing things about Slovenia and always wanted to visit. It, it, was that those carnivores that you were working with in Slovenia, you, you mentioned the Eurasian lynx. I saw in your resume you were working with brown bears over there. Are their behaviors and their their recovery and, and conservation similar to what you would experience here, or kind of were you playing by different rules? Well, let's we can start with with uh, brown bears. Uh, m- most of the world's uh, bear biologists refer to the genus and species Ursus arctos as brown bears, um, and you know they're found, you know, in the, in the northern latitudes throughout North America. Uh, Russia, Russian Far East, and then into to Europe and Scandinavia. The brown bears' behaviors are slightly different than uh, our grizzly bears. Um, we had there are generally fewer severe encounters, uh, maulings, and human fatalities. They do they do happen very rarely in Europe, um, but this, the issues are very similar in terms of human grizzly bear coexistence work. So brown bears in Slovenia and Croatia behave very similarly when it comes to finding garbage or seeking out and exploiting bees, beehives, okay. um, or scavenging on carrion or finding, you know, apples in, in, in orchards. And so much of the work we've done in Montana is very transferable to places like Slovenia, Croatia, Italy, um, that that part of Europe where humans and bears are overlapping. The Eurasian lynx is a different species than our Canada lynx. In Europe, they are a uh, top-level carnivore, and they primarily uh, eat uh, roe deer, which would be similar to our white-tailed deer. So they are they are a larger cat, and uh, you know, unlike our Canada lynx, which typically eat snowshoe hare, the Eurasian lynx are seeking out much larger uh, these small deer, the roe deer in uh, Western Europe. I didn't know that. That's interesting. And so, over the course of that project in Slovenia, can you talk about uh, your management objectives and, and kind of how that work went? My my primary job uh, joining the what was what is called the Life Links Project was to was to help provide some strategic uh, management and communication guidance regarding um, how to work with communities when you're planning to reintroduce a species like Eurasian lynx into into rural communities. And so it was there was an existing population that was very small and was showing genetic inbreeding issues. And so with this, what was technically called a translocation effort, um, our colleagues from Slovakia and Romania helped freshen the genetic pool of 
of individual links in Slovenia and Croatia with translocated individuals from Slovakia and Romania. So the, the large, the long-term goal was to essentially um, conduct a population rescue to freshen the genetic pool such that uh, long-term population viability would then occur with with less genetic issues. So um, it was it was a wonderful project. I got to, to meet, um, you know, farmers and mayors from small villages and spend time with landowners throughout Slovenia and Croatia. The hunting community in both Slovenia and Croatia were instrumental to the project. They actually released Eurasian lynx on some of their hunting grounds. Um, so that was really just interesting to see a diverse group of stakeholders come together there to support the recovery of a large carnivore. That's amazing. Such a rich uh, tradition of hunting in that part of the world, but that's great. I'm glad you got to have that experience and bring your family. I mean, what a dream. Um, so yeah, you thanks. Came, yeah. So you came back to the Blackfoot after that as the director, right? Correct. Yeah. Came back from Slovenia in 2019 and it was a, a homecoming for me um, to come back to a, a wonderful community, um, old friends, new friends, and take on a, a, a position of leadership. Um, and I've been in that position since 2019 as the executive director. Okay. Uh, in terms of the land use of this, of this place, historically and currently, so I guess let's start with the, the historic land use and the people that have been on this landscape in the past. I mean, what do you know about about the Blackfoot watershed and, and the places that you're working to conserve? Well, let's let's first start with uh, you know the indigenous peoples who uh, you know stewarded this land for for centuries before European settlement. This was very important seasonal area for the Salish and Kootenai tribes. There were many uh, summer camps for hunting and fishing. Camas root from the Camas lily as a plant species is found here. Very important area for the Salish and Kootenai people. The Nez Perce from what is today uh, central Idaho, that, that this area has been an important travel corridor. The Nez Perce referred to this area as the river of the road to the buffalo and so they would travel through through this valley on their way to the northern great plains to hunt at that time you know millions millions of bison and so this area has a you know rich cultural uh, indigenous history prior to european settlement and then let's see if we if we go back to some of the first uh, european explorers that came through the valley uh, we have Meriwether Lewis on his return trip in right. 1806 came through the Blackfoot in uh, early July with a very small party. And it doesn't get a lot of, you know, attention, but that was, um, you know, assumably some of the first, you know, white observations that were, were made by white uh, dis discoverers here in the early 1800s. The name of the big Blackfoot River was referenced in maps uh, beginning in the 1830s by Hudson Bay Company traders. And I believe by 1865, the name, the Big Blackfoot River was showing up on early maps as distinct from the Little Blackfoot River, which is 
further south of us. And so some people even today refer to this as the big Blackfoot. Interesting. I was reading that uh, Meriwether Lewis on his return trip, so they split up, right? He Lewis took the small party through this area on the way back. And I was reading some of his descriptions about this river being sort of, he was saying it's not really navigable by boat or raft. Uh, we're not going to make it across. And, and they had a some, maybe some negative encounters with uh, indigenous peoples at that time, right? I, I believe that's right. I think that's further east, perhaps out on the Marias Mar River after they okay. had traveled through here. But I, I'd have to go back and look at look at the journals. Um, yeah, it, it sounded like, you know, the river was a formidable, you know, uh, force to them. And, you know, they've been they've seen a lot, I, I you know, by that time. But, you know, when when uh, I don't know what the snowpack was doing uh, in 1806 in July, but the river still was, you know, there was clearly water in the river and, uh, lot, lot, and we, you know, lots of rapids and, and, and there's some real rocky canyony stretches of this river that would be uh, difficult to navigate in, in, you know, the canoes that they were using in those days for sure. For some more context, uh, this is the, the setting of Norman McLean's famous novel, The A River Runs Through It. And there's some some scenes in that novel with the rapids and the, uh, well, at least in the, in the movie, uh, which <laughs> we, we love to, we love to sort of joke about that. Um, apparently, um, you know, most of the filming was done on the Gallatin river, ah. um, because of, uh, you know, they, they thought the scenery was perhaps better over on the Gallatin river when it in fact took place here on the Blackfoot and as described in, uh, Norman McLean's book, uh, river runs through it. Yeah. I was wondering about that. Would this, would this have been one of the places that the first Americans maybe would have been coming down through with the glacial melt? Uh, you know, hard, hard to know, uh, Dylan. I, I think it might depend on, uh, you know, this area today is heavily, it was heavily glaciated. So I, 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 I don't know the answer to that in terms of like ice sheets, s snow pack at those times and yeah. how, you know, uh, w whether this would have been sort of one of those last places to sort of uh, melt off with with heavy glacial ice sheets but you can see the results of of the glaciation here today there's outwash plains there's lots of gravel and what we call eskers and you know, the, the mountainscape here was heavily glaciated okay yeah i was looking at a uh, well it was kind of a silly youtube video um a, eh, not really an archaeologist it was one of those kind of like trying to rewrite history type of videos, but they were focusing on that surrounding landscape of Missoula and some of the geological history. And um, I don't know, I enjoy that kind of stuff, you know, thinking about alternative uh, theories of, 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 not of evolution, of uh, geology and things like that. But it was all focused on that area because it was so, the landscape was so readable. It was like a lots of exposed geological formations and things like that. And you could really see the, the result of the, the glacial floods. That's right. Of course, there's the very famous glacial Lake Missoula, and you can see ancient shorelines um, from from the valley floor and uh, where those catastrophic floods, you know, uh, went all the way out into into the Columbia uh, River Gorge. It's it, it's an amazing landscape to to, to ab absolutely to read and to you can really see those uh, the, the historical glacial record. This video was. Um... <laughs> was taking that for a little further and, and, you know, one of those like 
there were advanced civilizations that got destroyed by the floods kind of thing. One of those fun kind of things. Uh, I won't send you a link. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, okay, yeah, this is, I mean, what an amazing place. I guess one of the interesting things about the challenge and about the complexity here is the pattern of development in the West that a lot of people have probably seen on a map, this checkerboard pattern. Uh, Can you talk about what that is and and why it came about as as a pattern of development. Sure, and that, that was an incentive to the the checkerboard pattern, as I understand it, was was a way to encourage statehood in in in, in with respect to the state what became state school trust lands, and so those sections uh, were granted to states with, for example, in Montana, an opportunity to generate revenue that would benefit. Uh, the school system, and so hmm. those those 640-acre sections, um, you know, became important sources of of revenue uh, in today's in today's uh, you know sector. For example, with forestry, we have state we have a state agency called uh, the Department of Natural Resources and Conservation, the DNRC, and part of their part of their mandate is to generate revenue off of those historically deeded sections of land that um, generate yeah. some income for schools in Montana. It also, it also was an, there was also incentives provided to the railroads. That's what I've um, always heard. As a checkerboard ride. And that, that's another part of this, this story that in order to build bridges and, and railroad, uh, the whole, the whole structure, the whole infrastructure for railroads needed a lot of timber. And so the uh, railroads were granted uh, these large, large 640-acre parcels that incentivized uh, building of, of the railways as well. Within this Blackfoot watershed, uh, there's a map that, that I'd like to share with when I release the episode. It's pretty astounding to see the land ownership of this place. It's just hundreds and hundreds of these little 640-acre sections. I don't know how many are in your, your watershed, but quite a few with... Um, I don't, you know, 50 different colors on there of all the landowners, and they're not contiguous parcels. So you have little pieces of checkers kind of scattered about that are owned by different stakeholders, different agencies, private landowners. It's interesting to me that that incredible complexity of ownership kind of led to a higher level of collaboration here, it seems like. Well, that's, you know, that's a you know, an astute observation. There's this very com- the very complex checkerboarded, you know, pattern of ownership in in this watershed, not uncommon for other valleys uh, in the in the West to show so similar patterns. When the Blackfoot Challenge was in its early days of incorporating in the 1990s, um, Becky Garland, who's a resident of Lincoln, Montana, uh, in it, and the story goes, you know, Becky were was looking at the map in, in a room with with uh, some of her fellow fellow residents and neighbors, and uh, she said, "This is going to be a challenge," and <laughs> that's how our name came about, the Blackfoot Challenge. Oh, okay, I love it. Yeah, when I first heard the name, I was I didn't understand that uh, that name, so that's that's interesting. Um, the you talked about kind of the impetus for for wanting to start this. I guess what is the structure now of this group, and and who's making the decisions? So the fundamental premise of, of our of our work is based on our communities. And so we are a 
collaborative conservation group that responds to community needs. And that that requires, you know, a, a structure that in, includes the diversity of ownership, as you just mentioned. You've got we've got US Forest Service, we've got Bureau of Land Management, we've got state ownership, US Fish and Wildlife Service, we've got private ranch lands, we've got the University of Montana that owns an experimental forest here. So our our structure reflects that diversity of ownership. And we have board members who are key decision makers from all those different land ownerships that represent that map on our board of directors. And that, that's a very important part of our structure and our governance. By, by bringing all those diverse, diverse owners and managers to the table, we have these very thoughtful conversations that have been going on for now three decades. So, uh, and we meet monthly, all of our different committees, whether it's our wildlife committee or our forestry and prescribed fire committee, having landowner as the chair of those committees. And so there's a very, there's a strong mechanism that builds in that community, to, that builds in, you know, the ability for community members to take part in, in this organization. And we've got 10 employees, a 30-person board, as I mentioned, that reflects that mosaic of ownership. And we have, you know, multiple committees and work groups that local residents can uh, take part in. And that's, it, and, and that's, that's in a nutshell, our process. It's, we, we take our time. We, we use a rule of thumb called proper pacing. So we need to make sure that, you know, we move at the right pace when it comes to landowners who might be very busy if you're a livestock producer in the Blackfoot Valley, you've got dozens and dozens of chores on any given day to attend to and machinery to manage and fence lines to upkeep. And, you know, right now, this time of year, we're right in the beginning, uh, right in the middle, really, of uh, calving. And so you're very busy as a landowner or a livestock producer. Yeah. And our, our process ensures that, you know, if you're a, and if you're a, uh, a biologist working for the for the state or the federal government, it's really important to understand how that pacing works. And so, by bringing everybody together regularly, we we keep those conversations going that that take time and that include everyone. Um, those are those are just sort of in a nutshell some of the ways we we work all together. Over all this time, do you find that it's still functioning? Uh, the way that it should, or has it started to get a little too big and too clunky? You know, I've been part of some of these processes where there's just too many people involved and it's really hard to make decisions. Is that kind of the case or or do you feel that, that it's still operating smoothly? You know, I'd say that we're operating smoothly and, you know, as, as times change, organizations need to change as well. And, you know, yeah. we've got people are moving to Montana and we welcome that and we've always been a very inclusive, open uh, organization. So, um, you know, we will adjust as needed to 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 account for the 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 changes that we we will all experience. Zoom, the Zoom meeting structure has been actually, you know, it's a it's a, perhaps a blessing and a curse, uh, but it's also been you know very efficient. We used to have almost full day meetings every month. Now we can we can shorten our board meetings to about 
two and a half to three hours, um, you can invite an expert in for 15 minutes to give an amazing update on, uh, say, sharp-tailed grouse, for example, and a new reintroduction effort that's going on in the watershed. And you can have a biologist sitting uh, out in eastern Montana uh, zooming in to, to tell us, hey, we're, we're catching birds in eastern Montana and we're going to be bringing them into the Blackfoot here in, in, in the coming field season. So, yeah. you know, Zoom allows a lot of people to participate. Um, yeah, you have to manage it. But it's been, you know, a good way to maintain uh, active participation of, among all of our key partners. That you know, a lot of these rural communities are experiencing that that pressure and that change. One of the things, looking at the the land ownership map, I noticed that there were some areas under conservation easement, but I'm not sure how much of the watershed is. Is there concern over development pressure and and the economic reality of, of maintaining land ownership and, and continuing agriculture in this part of the world? You know, we've got about, so the watershed is, is 1.5 million acres, uh, which is about the size of Delaware, the, the state of Delaware. So it's a, it's a large area. Close to 1.3 million acres are in a protected status. And, and what I mean by that is, one point, roughly 1.3 is either in public ownership, so state or federal, which, which will preclude development, or in private ownership with conservation easements. So many of our longtime ranch families uh, have conservation easements on ranches, and that will you know, provide options for the future in terms of maintaining uh, you know, viable operations and reducing the threat of housing development at, at a larger scale across ownerships, if that makes sense. Yeah. Does it mean we're immune from pressures? No. You know, we've got another 250,000 acres of private lands that are, are in unprotected status. They don't have conservation easements on them. The questions we're wrestling with now in the future uh, will be, you know, where do you want to encourage uh, smart growth? Uh, where do you want to uh, encourage some additional conservation perhaps on on certain properties. Uh, so we're having those conversations with our community members. You know, there's questions about affordable housing. The costs of living in Montana are are not trivial, even in, in the rural uh, parts of our state. So we're, we're wrestling with, with some of those issues that you, that you uh, point out, Dylan. There's a fantastic book called Billionaire Wilderness. Have you come across that yet? Yes, I have. Okay. Yeah, I think that, I mean, it raises a lot of questions in the end, but I, I think um, it seems pertinent to, to some of the things that you're dealing with. And of course, some of the things I deal with here working in the Aspen area. So one of the things that, that you've gained attention for, and uh, in a positive way, of course, is the, the carnivore coexistence work that you've been doing. And it sounds like you were instrumental in, in that as as the carnivores were returning the grizzly bears and the wolves were returning back to this their native range. Your program was figuring out ways to deal with them, to coexist with them. Can you talk about how that how that came about and some of the innovations that you've used to support that coexistence? Sure, and I and I would just say, you know, I'm really humbled when I look back on those years, and I took a very small part in 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 that. It really started with landowners who were willing to sit down with our state 
grizzly bear management specialists and our federal um, managers and biologists. Um, we, we never could have done the work we do today without uh, the landowners being willing to see, you know, our resident grizzly bear management specialists as a person first and foremost, and, and have those, that, that, that foresight to be thoughtful, to learn about grizzly bear behavior and subsequently wolf behavior when wolves came into the watershed in, in 2007. But it was really the willingness of landowners to sit down, you know, and it was the willingness of our, our, um, our partners from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, from Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks, um, to sit down and really talk it over. And that's what we did for the first couple of years was, you know, sit and visit and that's really important people people had concerns we we had conflicts starting in the late 1990s and uh, you know people were worried what does this mean for us what does this mean for our children's safety what does this mean for our yeah our livestock for our property um and part of the reason i'm i'm asking seth is that i'm in colorado and and by the end of this year sure. we have wolves being reintroduced we have wolves already naturally migrating here you know, I think everyone's kind of looking to other good examples of how to deal with this. Well, you know, it's it's a constant learning process. You know, it's uh, I, I sometimes will think of it as sort of the messy middle ground. Um, it's it's not easy. Both whether you're a proponent for wolves or you're an opponent of wolves, um, it's it takes people sitting down it takes the wildlife management community it takes the ngo community and it takes those landowners or in, in certain cases those livestock producers who um who are attempting to raise livestock and feed their families it takes a good faith effort by everybody to sit down treat each other uh, respectfully and use tools that can help minimize and prevent conflicts you will not eliminate all conflicts um, we have we have conflicts here with grizzly bears and with wolves. I'm I'm proud of the fact that our producers and landowners and residents, you know, are really always willing to continue to try. You know, we use we use electrified fencing to protect vulnerable newborn calves at this time of year to prevent grizzly bears from killing and eating calves. We use solar powered electric fencing. And work with our bee beekeepers to, to minimize bear impacts and bear damages to beehives. Um, one of our early innovations that we've continued to work on for, for nearly 20 years now has been livestock carcass management. In uh, in the early days of our efforts, we found that female grizzly bears were teaching their young to scavenge on boneyards, which are places on on ranches where naturally uh, natural natural death uh, of livestock uh, result in you, know, you need to put you know calves or mother cows that have died naturally during the calving process somewhere. Mm -hmm. Typically, these were, were were these ideas of a dead pit or a boneyard. They were located fairly close to um, calving areas, and so you've got this sort of perfect storm of opportunity. Uh, where newborn calves are being born, and if you have boneyards located near near that those birthing areas, and you've got afterbirth and 
scavenging opportunities for bears or wolves, you know, carnivores will find find those areas, and it just increases yeah. the risk of having additional conflicts. So, we've been working hard to remove those boneyards, and we've got local residents here who help us collect uh, those those livestock off of ranches every year, um, and we collect them now 365 days a year. You can uh, request support. And one of our drivers will come out and remove uh, live, those livestock carcasses. The The other part of this equation is how do you deal with all those carcasses? And we've had a wonderful partnership with Montana Department of Transportation, who has really been a pioneer of carcass composting. They've, they've dealt with roadkill deer and elk issues. And so they needed a place to deal with roadkill deer and elk that they were collecting. They decided to try composting. Um, in the late 1990s, they figured that system out. And then by 2007, 2008, we asked them if they might be willing to try composting livestock that come off of Blackfoot area ranches. And they said yes. And um, to this day, we've had this great partnership where we remove carcasses off of ranches and have them composted at, at a state agency, Montana Department of Transportation. And that's been a real win-win for, for everybody. I had never heard of this until a few days ago, prepping for this for this conversation. I just never really thought of it, but I've heard of composting in high heat operations, larger larger mounds. Um, I've been to a composting facility where they said, "Yeah, you know, you can actually throw deli meat in this thing, and it's it's so high temperature that that it'll compost." So, I guess I just I didn't realize this was happening with with livestock. Uh, it's fascinating. I I would have thought that like maybe incineration or something like that would be a better way to go about it, but I'm assuming that's too expensive. It is expensive. And, and you've, then you've got the issue of, of finding an incinerator. And so there, there are a few mobile incinerator units. Um, but again, it's expensive to get them to locations and actually use them. So this has been a, a very cost effective alternative for us. I love it. And yeah, I was reading that uh, some other folks in in other parts of Montana, like the Madison Valley, have have followed suit and have started doing similar things, right? Correct. And we've, you know, we've been uh, happy to help our our, our na- neighbors throughout the state and other in other western states with with this. When you mentioned Colorado, we hosted a tour in this, just this past September with um, livestock producers from Colorado. Wildlife managers, um, researchers from Colorado State University. So we, we, we had, a I don't know, almost 30 of our sort of friends and neighbors from Colorado come up and visit to talk with some of the, the, the ranchers here about their experiences with primarily focused on wolves. But we talked about some of these tools like livestock carcass removal and livestock carcass management, uh, range riders, electrified fencing flattery fencing, which is a type of visual fencing to uh, deter wolves uh, from uh, pastures uh, that have perhaps uh, vulnerable livestock there. So we've we're, we're hoping that you know we might be able to share some of our some of the process by which we bring people together and some of the tools that we use in 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 Colorado where where you've got this whole, this wolf recovery that's unfolding and it's sort of a story that will be uh, sort of written by all the folks involved down there. Yeah, absolutely. Still some, some important decisions to be made there in terms of 
whether once recovery objectives are met, whether wolves will be considered a, a game species, which is one of the last remaining very controversial parts of this is that a lot of folks don't even want any sort of mention of, of wolf hunting. And, and a lot of other folks think that's that's a really dangerous way to go about this, to just kind of set them loose and um, have no plan for, for managing them when they ultimately hopefully do well on the landscape, which everyone believes that they will. I've spoken to some folks in the past about managing wolves, uh, specifically around sheep grazing, some of the non-lethal methods they use. It sounds like similarly kind of the turbo flagry, reflective devices, noise-making devices, things like that to just kind of establish the human presence in, in their mind. It sounds like you're using a lot of that stuff, but you mentioned range riding. Is that a shared resource where you have one group of range riders that's kind of shared among all the Blackfoot Challenge members, or is this individual ranches? It's it's primarily individual ranches in in certain parts of the watershed. It, as I mentioned, it's it's such a big it's such a big valley that that you know even with three sometimes four seasonal range riders you know you can only cover so many acres and so many herds of livestock and so we've tried to focus uh, our rider effort on you know first those producers who ask for support and that com- comes back to our sort of our mission is to serve our, our communities and also where we have no where we know we have long-time wolf presence and where we can expect wolves and livestock to overlap. So we, we try to be strategic in that. But, you know, in certain, certain there are certain grazing associations where multiple ranchers will have, uh, you know, their herds that are co-mingled over, over large areas. And, and um, in certain cases, our range riders will be helping uh, multiple uh, ranchers in those situations. But it varies a little bit each year. But um, that's been uh, a, a long-time program that for us dates back uh, to, to actually when wolves uh, first s- started showing up here in the valley. We've we've had a range rider program since 2007, hmm. um, and we've had we've really worked hard to hire local local uh, residents. Um, we've often hired ranchers who's you know the next generation of uh, you know 20 to 30 year olds who, who know a lot about animal husbandry and, and livestock production. They're often the best range riders. They've got a great understanding of what it means to to raise cattle in a in an environment that's got grizzly bears and wolves. They're trusted among community members, and um, you know they're very good on 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 the whole wildlife uh, wolf behavioral side. So we've had that program for for many years, as I mentioned. I think you're about to see a bunch of new job listings for ranch <laughs> for range riders out there. Uh, in Colorado, we've got a bunch of cattle hanging out on public land, uh, largely unchaperoned right now, and uh, that's going to have to change. So, so if you're thinking about something like that and you're young and want to ride around on a horse, pay attention to that. I think that'd be pretty sweet to do for a couple of seasons. Well, you certainly get out into some amazing, amazing country, and you get to work with some amazing ranchers, and it, yeah, it's a very interesting position where you know you're communicating a lot of information both to our wildlife managers and to ranchers and to um you know the blackfoot challenge in our case yeah. uh, so it's yeah interesting work and you know really important uh, again sort of another important tool that we use to to um live alongside wolves in this in a, a landscape like the blackfoot yeah free lodging too in a wall tent <laughs> <laughs> there you so, go 
Uh, tell me about some of the other native species that are that are present or being reintroduced in the Blackfoot Valley. You know, trumpeter swan have been uh, a really interesting effort over many, many years. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has been a, a lead partner in uh, helping to reintroduce and to establish uh, a trumpeter swan population uh, here in the Blackfoot Valley. And landowners have been instrumental in helping us monitor swans. Uh, they've taken part in, in uh, dozens of, of swan releases. And so that's been a, that's been a sort of an amazing effort that's, that's, uh, that's, that's showing uh, success. We've got many uh, reproducing nests and um, survivorship has been increasing over the years. And so uh, we're, we're very hopeful that uh, we'll have a self-sustaining population of trumpeter swan here in the, in the Blackfoot. With that successful effort, we have all the native species, actually, if we go back to uh, Lewis and Clark, that, that, that they observed wow. uh, here in the, in, in the uh, early 1800s. I should probably add a footnote there and say, the sharp-tailed grouse is a new effort, and their populations have sort of uh, increased and decreased over time a bit in the Blackfoot. But with that reintroduction effort, it's currently just going on by Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. Sharp-tailed grouse, trumpeter swan, we're, again, lucky. We've got really a full assemblage of those native species, lynx, grizzly bears, wolves, mountain lion, wolverine, fisher, songbirds, I mean, elk, mule deer, white-tailed deer. So it's, you know, a full suite of species here. And with with amazing stewardship that private landowners have, have been doing here for, for generations, again, it's that, it's that collaborative work across boundaries of both with private landowners and our state and federal agencies that have really helped restore and have maintained, you know, a thriving wildlife presence here. Uh, for, for many, many decades. And I, and I hope it continues uh, well into the future. What's the role of, or the, the involvement of recreation within this landscape? Are these ranchers, do they have hunting and fishing programs for supplementary income? And I, I'm sure there's hunting and fishing access into the public lands, but, but how much of this is being managed by, or of the wildlife is being managed by hunters? Well, there's, we have a program in Montana called Block Management that allows public access on privately owned land. And the state helps, you know, coordinate some of the access and management of, of those hunters who who uh, use those, those block management lands. And there's an incentive payment made to uh, participating landowners. Um, so there's there's a there's a long long time mechanism for public use of private lands in places like the Blackfoot through that block management uh, effort. Fishing sort of depends on you know individual branches or private landowners whether they'll allow access to those to to those uh, you know streams that through their private property. But you know we've got a, a I think it's the open access stream. Well, I'd have to go back to, to the exact specifics, but there's quite a bit of public, you know, Montana's got a long history of public access on, on navigable waterways, both for fishing and floating. Yeah. Um, and then, as you mentioned, Dylan, lots of access on, on for hunting and fishing on, on uh, the public lands throughout the watershed. One area you mentioned recreation, um, you know, we're seeing, you know, COVID really, really brought, brought home the 
the questions of, of, of sort of future recreation and, and recreational pressure, uh, we're, we're seeing uh, increased use of the Blackfoot River by a whole suite of floaters, and we're seeing more use in sort of upper reaches of the of the 132 mile river, um, where we hadn't seen as much use historically. So, you know, people continue to use the river, and they're spreading out to use more and more uh, sections of of the river, and that that brings a whole host of issues from access and crowding. Uh, fires you know all sorts of all sorts of issues are, are coming up so we're hosting a series of conversations to hopefully develop a, you know a recreational uh vision and 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 a, and a committee or a work group we'll see what happens we're in the early stages but uh whether it's fire or grizzly bears or wolves and and recreation now is one of the, the big issues we're dealing with um i'm hopeful that the blackfoot challenge can can play that positive role of catalyzing and convening the different stakeholders who uh, who have a real vested interest in, in the future of the river. So that's uh, just one example. Hiking, biking, uh, camping, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing increased pressure across, across the watershed. So yeah. it's a, like Colorado or Washington State or Idaho, you know, all, all of us are, we're in this together. I think uh, we're, we're all going to be dealing with increased recreational pressures across the American West. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's affecting everywhere, as you said. It's kind of ubiquitous. I just was applying for tags, uh, for hunting tags for this year in my area, and all of these units that were previously over the counter in my area are now not, because we just have a huge increase in in out of state uh, hunting pressure. Where at this point, there are more out of state hunters on over the counter units than than in state hunters, and. It's a great thing that Colorado and, and other states provide access. And, and as someone who wants to hunt other states, I'm glad that there are non-resident opportunities. But agencies are grappling with this, I think, across the board, whether it's recreation, pressure on national parks, pressure on, on public lands. Um, shed antler seasons are being restricted more and more because of the effect on calving cervids. So, yeah, it's um it's interesting. And one of the things that I've been introduced one of the ideas I've been introduced to and 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 I think would be worth exploring more is this backpack tax idea where recreationalists other than hunters and and anglers are paying toward management of these lands where you know if you go and buy something some recreational equipment some ice climbing equipment or whatever if that were a gun 11% of it goes to management and so you know I I think I think that would give other recreationalists a little bit more vested interest in these landscapes and i think it would just help with overall funding and management but that's something i want to explore a little bit more well you know you you point out a you know important uh challenge that that all of us in 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 the west are facing with with whether it's recreation or wildlife it's you know conservation costs money and at the end of the day, you need to have the resources to to manage these these sort of very dynamic processes. And so, you know, we're 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 exploring ideas of watershed ambassadors. Can we have uh, seasonally employed residents help on you know fishing access sites or proper protocols for camping and being bear aware or providing hunters with bear spray? So that all takes time. It takes takes money, and you know. We, I think I, I would agree we need to find, um, you know, new and innovative ways, whether they're different types of tax systems or tax schemes 
to raise those revenues. Um, you know, all of all of this will take uh, dollars and cents to, to make conservation work. Yeah. Well, I think these are all of these problems are, are being experienced uh, across the West and and across the world in in one way or another. So um, I appreciate the Blackfoot Challenge being a, a good example of how to navigate this stuff, and and you all have have innovated and just yeah set set the bar for managing these kind of complex natural resource questions through through collaboration so good on you well thanks dylan i would i would say you know in 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 a in a nation that's so polarized um i i get up every day and feel really lucky that we have conversations before conflict we treat each other with kindness uh, we have the ability to empathize, whether you're a hunter or a fisher or a passionate wildlife biologist. Um, when you sit down for a meeting in this valley, we really try to, you know, set aside our egos, set aside our arrogance and look each other in the eye, roll up our sleeves and treat each other like uh, good neighbors can. And so I feel that, uh, you know, it's it's a great fortunate it's a fortunate uh, place to be in the world when there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, despair out there and um, I'm, I'm still very hopeful and I'm very hopeful that the the uh, human spirit is alive and well in a place like uh, Western Montana and uh, I, it's a real honor to get to work in a place where we have wonderful communities of, of people coming together every day it's not easy um, but you know the the hard the hardest things aren't are are never easy in life, and so if we can continue to work together and treat each other um, as people, then you can get a lot of a lot of work done in the radical middle ground. <laughs> yeah, well said. If people want to see a little bit more, even just see photos and videos of this amazing landscape, or see some of these maps and some of the examples of what you're talking about, where can they go? Well, come to our website, just Google up uh, Blackfoot Challenge, and I'll just put a plug in for it because I'm really proud of all of our landowners who took part in it, and a wonderful filmmaker named Jeremy Roberts, who produced uh, our first ever origin story film. It's called Landscape of Hope. Mm -hmm. If you go to the Blackfoot Challenge's website, click on our history tab, and it's a it's a short 15 minute um, story about you know our origins uh, and how we do what we do, and I think uh, you'll enjoy it. Great, yeah. I think I I think I saw the living with carnivores one, which was a little bit older probably, but a little bit longer, and that one was fantastic. So I'll have to check out the the landscape of hope one, and I'll post a link to that as well. Well, thanks, Dylan. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun to work with uh, Jeremy Roberts, our filmmaker, and he captured some yeah beautiful visuals and some uh, some real poetry from uh, people like Lan Lindbergh and Jim Stone. So yeah, it's it was it was a lot of fun, and I again it was um, it was fun to be able to share some of our our beginnings, and uh, it's a it's it's a positive vision for the future. I love it. I'll point people in the right direction. And um, yeah, Seth, I really appreciate your time here and then kind of walking through some of these questions with me. It's been an honor. 
Same, Dylan. Thank you for, for your podcasts and uh, these conversations about ethics and land. And uh, we have uh, one home out there, so we need to uh, work together and um, appreciate all you're doing. So thank, thank you. Thanks, Seth. All right. Well, um, folks, yeah, check out the Blackfoot Challenge. That's all for now. Take care.